As Christians, to what does Jesus Christ call us? A personal relationship with Him? Or maybe is it something more? Join us today as we answer that question, exploring the ancient Christian teaching of divinization with Father David McConey, author of the new book, Christ Alive in Me. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're talking about living as a member of the mystical body. I'm joined by our panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Father David McConey, Jesuit, Father McConey is an associate professor of patristics and the founder of the Catholic Studies Program at St. Louis University. He holds a license in sacred theology from the University of Innsbruck and a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford University. He is also author and editor of many books, including 101 Surprising Facts About Church History, Sacred Scriptures and Secular Struggles, The One Christ, St. Augustine's Theology of Deification, and Christ Alive in Me, Living as a Member of the Mystical Body, which is our topic today. Welcome so much, Father. It's great Thanks to have you here. Father. Um, maybe we can begin just by what moved you? Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote it because it came out of an experience I had with a street preacher in Edinburgh, Scotland. <laughs> and she approached me knowing I figured what she was going to ask. She asked if I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way she said it just struck me that relationship literally means side to side. And I told her that I didn't want a relationship with Jesus, with her and the saints and my friends, that would be fine. But with Christ, I wanted something more, namely union. And in good evangelical fashion, she says, well, that's not in scripture. <laughs> so I quoted to her Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Later that evening during my prayer time, I just realized this was what the church fathers taught about the mystical body, about divinization, that we are called not simply to keep the rules or the commandments, but to extend Christ's own divine presence in, on earth. So. That's what prompted me to sit down and sort out these chapters. Yeah, yeah I really appreciated the, the relationship being side by side. And just maybe just talk a little bit more about that. This Because we always talk about personal relationship, sure. but there's something much more than that. And there I thought is. that was beautiful. More, not less. Yes, we all yes, need a yes, personal yes, relationship, yes. right? We need that daily prayer time with Jesus. We need to pray to discover his character, his mannerisms, his mind, his will. But when that happens, he's no longer someone outside. But what does Paul say in Galatians 4.19? Christ is being born within us, right? We are called to bear Christ into the world by becoming his hands and his feet, his eyes, his words, mm -hmm. his heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a personal relationship with uh, the family across the street. Uh, they invite me over for Sam Adams, you know. But that's not the same thing as the relationship that I have with Kimberly. I right. could say, well, I've got a personal relationship with Kimberly Hahn. But that would be almost deceptive. Exactly. Uh, especially if I said it like at a frat party or something. Exactly. And you, know, you have something more. You have marital union. That's right. right. And that's exactly what Galatians 2.20 is talking mm -hmm. about and calling us to. And, and so it's, it's a book that I would say is deceptively simple because it's like the gospel itself. Mm 
The gospel is an invitation to enter into communion with Christ. And then suddenly you begin to realize that's like not just entering a room with a person. It's entering, you know, it's entering heaven. It's entering into communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all of the saints and angels. And it's almost too much, and it is too much, to present all at once. Exactly. And so, come on, unite yourself to me, Christ says, and I'll show you around. You know? Imagine if he would have started the Gospels that way, but we don't get to Matthew 25 knowing that what we do to the others, we do to him. Right. So he builds us into this awareness that we are to serve him in one another. Yeah. You know, Father, that, that uh, vignette you shared about the woman, uh, it really strikes me as odd because uh, why would she perceive that as a provocation? Why would she be offended? Because to become united with God in Christ is sort of a commonplace of the Christian life. I mean, when people ask, well, why did he come? Uh, we say, well, he came to redeem us, mm -hmm. uh, to set us free from sin, uh, to forgive all of those transgressions stretching all the way back to Adam. And that is entirely true, but it's not true enough. Not it's enough. not right. nearly right. deep enough. Enough. Right. He came to deify us, came to but why didn't us? she know that? Well, it's not traditional Protestant language. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're discovering it more and more in the academy. There are more and more editions of books looking at Lutheran understanding of divinization and, and Reformed, but primarily it's a patristic understanding, and I really think you need the Eucharist at the heart of it to make sense. Sure, sure. How else do we literally become sure. one with the God-made flesh? That's right, yeah. yeah. One of the, reading the book, it was, I don't know how to explain this, but I felt like I was reading it inside out, that the, the way you presented Christ taking flesh and, and the impact that that has on all of humanity, that was, it wasn't just something reading, but there was something about it that was just very internal that I thought was mm. beautiful. But that's at the center of it all, correct? It is, that, it that is. Christ becomes, becomes human. Exactly. He's flesh. no longer out there, someone to be placated or, or won over, but he's someone working internally within you. Yeah. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's yeah. the sacraments. It's everything we teach about salvation. It's really the great teaching of St. Augustine, despite centuries of misunderstanding. I mean, Augustine has really been uh, uh, given a, a very poor showing. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, when, when Augustine says, we don't become Christian, we become Christ. Right. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary claim. Catechism, but if it's true... Catechism 795, that notion of Christ includes not just himself, but his body as well. Yeah that we're not just Christians, we are extensions of Christ. And in the end, it will be the total Christ loving Christ. Right, one Christ loving himself. Yeah. You know, I suppose it was because Luther was himself an Augustinian monk, and Calvin claimed Augustine, that people today associate Augustine's doctrine of salvation with the legal and the juridical. Mm -hmm. But as you pointed out in your, in your dissertation, I believe, uh, the theology of deification is not just like fragmentarily present in Augustine. Yeah. It runs like a foundation runs along exactly. the building. Yeah. The word deification appears only 18 times in Augustine's five and a half million word corpus, but the reality is all over the place. All over the place. Becoming other Christ, sons and daughters of the Father. What does it mean to be an adopted child, but yet to have God's own life within you? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, in that earlier book you wrote on St. Augustine, which, by the way, was extremely helpful uh, for me in teaching a course okay. on Augustine, we moved through the confessions. And to draw upon this deification language, uh, I, I found very uh, enriching. But you quote in that book uh, Robert Wilkin, mm -hmm. who seizes upon that verb to cleave and says, this is the best possible term to capture uh, the mystery of, of embodiment that Augustine wants to impart. And, and when you think about a marriage, one 
partner cleaves to the other, the two become one flesh. Right. Why, why should it be less intimate right. when, when Christ enters into the soul of a, of a Christian? And what's provocative about that term cleave, it, it also can mean separate. We cleave a piece of meat in half because yeah. we never literally become Christ, but we partake in His life in yeah. such a way that we extend yeah. and continue yeah. His life, but yeah. we never are absorbed into Him. Right. Yeah, it's Christ in me, mm-hmm. but it's Christ. You right, know? Right, right. And so it's a union, but it's not like an absorption. I would wonder even if the preposition as wouldn't be more accurate. Christ yeah. as me. He's living your life. You're, profe- you're a professor as Christ would be to the extent you can be and so yeah. on, right? That we are to enter into the world of discipleship and service as Christ. But well, Christ respects the integrity of the other. He enters into me, but he doesn't become me. I retain my separate exactly. individuation, right. uh, and that's important. And you, yeah, you speak about that, that, that it's not it's not taking something away from you, but it allows you to be the truest self. Exactly. You speak that, that, that idea of the being your truest self. And I imagine the entire understanding of divinization hinges upon a robust understanding of the Trinity. Here we have perfect unity, but with complete distinction as well. Right, right, right? Yeah. And because we're made in God's image and likeness, the more we become like God, we don't lose ourselves. We actually become our fullest self. We become the self we're supposed to be. Right. Yeah. You know, that lady in Edinburgh who asked about person relationship and then who balked at the notion of union, uh, her name is Legion. <laughs> for there are many, uh-huh. many. And it's not just Protestants. You know, for 35 years now, I've been a Catholic, and I find that Catholics don't understand deification all that much better than than Protestants. It's at the heart of our tradition in a way that it's not for Lutherans or Calvinists as a former Presbyterian. And, and, you know, oftentimes when we think of a relationship, uh, we're tempted to view it in in very stern, moralistic terms. I'm related to Christ because He's my judge. Mm -hmm. He's always looking, watching over my shoulder uh, to catch me out, to pounce. I mean, that's not the sort of relationship you would welcome. No. No, not at all. And I think what you do beautifully is, is again, the indwelling of God's presence in us. That I think oftentimes when we think of God, it's us and God out there, but you, you bring home that, that He's actually right. dwells in us. And because of it, it changes everything. And as beautiful as human adoption is, divine adoption is even richer because the Father's own life is within you. That doesn't happen in a human family. Mm. It it is extrinsic and forensic, that adoption. It's legal and it's good and it's beautiful, but as Christians, we actually enjoy something even more, the Father's own divine life. And you speak to that about the Jewish culture and the custom of adoption and and how Jesus gives us a different understanding, or our being adopted is a different understanding in that. Exactly. And it's at the heart of what Jesus taught us, our Father. And the prayers of every liturgy to the Father, through the Son, and the unity of the Holy Spirit, we get a hint of all the Trinitarian Christological elements right there. You know, there's a reversal of sorts. You know, I'm thinking of Paul quoting Epimenides in Athens in Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our being. Wow, how close can you get? Well, flip that around. In Christ we live and move and have his being. Like, there is a union with our Creator. Uh, he is imminent in his creation. He's not identical to it, or we'd be pantheists, but he's not so far removed or transcendent as to be like the absentee landlord. Right. Uh, and so there is a union with our Creator, but what happens in redemption, just that it, it takes it to a level that is almost mind boggling. And what's mind boggling is the converse is actually true too. Christ is living his life in us. The, the yes, incarnation exactly. is still going on mm-hmm. as Christ is extending his body throughout the globe. I mean, when Jesus lived on earth, how many people did he see a day? 5,000 at a good day? I mean, today's billion. 
Right. And, and how many people did he heal? A few now today in Christian hospitals and Catholic places of, of, of healing? The, the church is doing, what does Jesus say? You'll do greater things than these. And I think that's what he means, pointing to the mystical yeah, body. You know, when he said that in John 14, I suspect that all 12 of the disciples were thinking, no, it is not to our advantage <laughs> right. that you go yeah, to yeah, the yeah, Father. Yeah, really really stick around yeah. if we have to leave town, let's cut our losses, but don't leave, you know, and yet, he isn't distant. He's closer now than he was back then. That's right. That's right. Well, this is a, a mystery that we enshrine really at the heart of the Eucharist. Exactly. I, I think of that one prayer. I think it's a silent prayer that priest and, and people uh, recite quietly together by the mystery of this water and wine. May we come to uh, share, to participate uh, in the mystery of Christ. Of the divinity Christ, of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. His emptiness becomes our right. plenitude. That's I mean, right. that's the great mystic exchange. Yeah. I don't think we take it literally enough. Right, exactly. And Augustine has some great lines where he says, you know, you don't have anything to truly live by, but God does. And he had nothing by which he could die, but you do. And so this great exchange, we're giving. I mean, when Our Lady said yes, she gave God mortality. She gave the Son of God a finitude and a smallness mm -hmm. that would cost his life. But that's precisely what he needed to redeem us so we could have the true life. Yeah. So there's that great exchange. The retrieval of the Eucharist, Eucharistic faith, Eucharistic devotion, Eucharistic amazement, I think is the hinge on which everything is going to turn. Because when we recognize, okay, Jesus had a body, a physical body, and he still has it. It's resurrected. Mm -hmm. It's tucked away safely someplace in the highest heavens. But we profess the real presence of his body in the Eucharist. And it isn't like a metaphor. You know, my body that is mortal, that's more like the metaphor. But then suddenly you realize if we're consuming his body, we're becoming his body. And even that's not a metaphor. That's right. There's a sense in which the body of Christ that we consume the corpus mysticum, as the Lubach might say, makes us the mystical body in a way that surpasses how my arms and legs are parts of my body. And at that point, you know, brain should be exploding, but at the same time, we ought to be prostrating ourselves before the, the, the Blessed Sacrament in adoration and thanksgiving, because, you know, this is not something that human, humans could ever devise. No, and right. thanksgiving is key. Yeah. Because the church is an extension of Christ's body. It's not like a, a pen holding a hand. It's like the hand coming off the arm. We profess our faith in one holy Catholic apostolic church because this is the body of Christ. I mean, because of that Eucharistic realism, we have the ground for ecclesial realism. Exactly. Right. And it's shocking. It's and we're not left orphans. He kept his promise. The body and blood of Jesus is still with us. But now we have the, the Eucharist and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. So we have Plus both. Yeah, the good news is almost too good to be true. It's almost too good to understand or comprehend. Yeah, we had it in the gospel just the other day in John 6 when he says, um, for this the spirit is needed, right? The flesh is useless. Flesh. I mean, if, if I'm just going to cognitively understand what we're talking about, it just doesn't make sense. But the spirit of God enables us. And, and I think to your point, uh, Thanksgiving should be the response. The nature of the Eucharist is thank you. Gratitude. The perfect thank you that, that I'm incapable of doing. Exactly. I, I think of that passage from Elizabeth of the Trinity. Uh, she, she invites the spirit of love, this consuming love, to enter into her and enable her to become a humanity where Christ renews his own mystery. Let the incarnation continue in me. I, I think she means it literally. Of course she does. Yeah. Of course she does. It's too powerful to mean symbolically. Yeah, right. What would that mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the flesh availeth nothing, the spirit gives life. You know, it reminds me of what I think St. John Chrysostom said, that Jesus does not say, my flesh availeth nothing, my flesh is useless. No, he's just been talking about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. 
But this is pre-resurrection, and so it's only after the Paschal mystery of His death and resurrection that the Spirit deifies His flesh, mm-hmm. and then the Spirit is going to give us the life through the Eucharistic flesh and blood of Christ. And, you know, it's, it's more than just transubstantiation. There really is a transformation that, sets in, that is set in emotion that will, again, bring about our divinization. Right, transform us. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've used the term uh, deification a couple of times, but I suggest we uh, take a break and join us as we discuss more about what exactly that means. At the heart of Christianity is Christ's life in us. So it's not just a matter of knowing Jesus, who is the truth, and that's really important. It's not just a matter of following Jesus, who is the way, that's really important. At the heart of the matter is we receive Christ's life in us. It penetrates us, transforms us, elevates us into this divine life, which is Christ Himself. It's like getting a divine DNA transplant. It's like having the garden of God's life poured into our hearts so we can call God Father. Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land, Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about living as members of the mystical body. We've used the term deification a couple of times, but maybe you can help us understand more fully what that means. Well, literally, deification means becoming God, but it has to be understood correctly. I would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) The first use, of course, is Greek. It's theosis, which means becoming godly. Uh, Edward Pusey, the 19th century Oxford Don, translated that en-godding, that God is in you. Okay. And basically, the the place to find it is 2 Peter 1.4, that we become partakers of the divine nature. And when you partake of another nature, you take on its effects. You take on its 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 glow, its 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 essence. And when we live in Christ, we can do superhuman things like love our enemies and forgive our persecutors, and we can do things that aren't naturally human. It just sounds so to the it's because, shocking. Yeah, this is exactly, why we don't exactly, know more of it exactly. because it's hard to preach about. Like but if you think gods. of any human human love, you inevitably become like the people with whom you spend the most time. You become yeah. like the people, or at least seek to become like the person you love the most. And God became human because He loves us. And our response then should be love Him so much that we become more and more like Him. You, in, in the book you talk about, we use other words like becoming holy, conversion, those all maybe to soften it? Sanctification. Yeah, 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 exactly, it's a little more exactly. palpable. I yeah. think a lot of people in America especially associate divinization with Mormons. Or the New Age. Yeah, yeah right, right. But Mormons have a, an approach to divinization that is problematic in the extreme because they don't have an infinite divinity who is eternal mm-hmm. to divinize. So you have an infinite regress of finite deities going back and back and back. And so, you know, you, you really can't in any way compare the two. Right. That's a counterfeit. But on the other hand, I think what you have to recognize is that at the heart of our faith is the notion of mystery. And mystery is not identical to metaphor. You know, mystery relates to metaphor like lightning to the lightning bug. You know, to reduce this to symbolism, you know, uh, is just pointless. Right. Uh, And you might think, where we partake of divine nature, some seek to possess it. That's exactly what Genesis 3-5 is about. Satan gets our attention first and foremost by promising we'll become like God because we're made to become like God. That's how he tempts us. 
Yeah, and if God made us in His image and likeness, then obviously God wants us to become like God more than exactly. the serpent does. But only you know? a God-made man can make men and women gods. It's That's that right. great exchange. It's not Satan's to give, but he knew how to tempt us. That's right. He couldn't tempt us with something we already had, nor could he tempt us with something for which we had no idea. And so being made in God's image and likeness, we thirst to become eternally joyful and eternal right. and immortal, yeah. As the Catechism says, we became like God, but without God. So we really snuffed out the life of God and the soul. It was a spiritual suicide pact. Yeah. The thing about the Christian story is that it really is too good to be true. Uh, and that's what we, we fail, I think, uh, 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 significantly to pass along, whether as preachers or theologians. Uh, and that's a great pity. That's an impoverishment. You speak of the two acts of the play, if you reduce Christianity to a kind of libretto, a, a play, a drama, mm-hmm. a set piece. The first act is God descending uh, into the human estate. He becomes like us. But then the second act, the climactic scene, is you and I becoming like God, mm-hmm. divinization. That is literally too good to be true. And most people, I think, can't handle it. it it's just too intoxicating, too overwhelming. So I think we shrink from speaking of it, and yet that is the main event. That's it what is. it's about. It is. The goal. If you yeah. leave it out, you've got nothing. Right. You, you sure. have moralism. You have legalism. You say it's just not moral living. Ritualism, right. moralism, legalism, yeah. all the isms. Yeah. Yeah. But what we need to do is appeal to the average Christian's understanding of what life is all about. It's not simply to keep the rules. It's not simply to be created or, or, or forgiven or saved. It's to become a superhuman being. Yeah. C.S. Lewis says, living in Christ isn't like teaching a horse how to run faster. It's teaching a horse how to fly. And when we look at the saints, when we look at people that lead extraordinary lives, we see a joy and integrity in them that we think, hmm, maybe there's something there. There's something different about the way they do it than what's happening in me. Yeah, Chesterton has that great quip, the reason angels can fly is because they take themselves lightly. If if you're filled with Christ, you take yourself lightly and you take flight. Yeah, you jump into the heavens. There you go. Into the arms of God. You know, in the previous segment, you mentioned that uh, it all goes back to the Trinity. And to recognize that God is from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whereas He's not creator from all eternity, even though He decided in eternity to create. However old creation is, it's not eternal like God is. And so we're stuck with the conclusion, well, the Trinity is not only the only God that exists, but the only thing God eternally is. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, it's the only thing that explains everything He does. And so you have to look, you know, you almost have to press fast forward because what's last in execution, is, you know, Aristotle says, is first in intention. And so if he intended to create us, well, for what? To redeem us from what? Sin, but for what? For hmm. himself. If he's a father sending the son to give us the spirit of sonship for us to cry, Abba, Father, you know, my father through my mother gave me my nature, mm-hmm. you know? But that was generation. This is regeneration. Mm-hmm. Baptism, again, is mere symbol unless it really affects this new birth and infuses divine life. And then we're off to the races because the good news was already too good to be true when we were infants getting baptized, yeah. mm-hmm. becoming children of this divine family. It's, it's got it so much more beautiful than, than we were just created to be saved, but we were created to be brought into the very life of God. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, when we just focus on what we did wrong and, and the work that Jesus did to fix that, yeah. oh, sure, that's a part of it. 
But this is, there's just something so much more beautiful and Well, brought in the life of love. This is the Trinity, right? Lover, beloved, and the love who unites. And this is the image and likeness for which we're made. And this is why love is the most important thing in any healthy person's life. They understand that only love doesn't fail and only love isn't destroyed. That's a a really liberating uh, insight. And I I thank you, Scott, for touching on it. The finality is contained somehow uh, in the origin, in the Mm -hmm. beginning. In my end is my beginning. In my beginning is my end, uh, says T.S. Eliot. So from all eternity, God intended us to be children uh, of the Father. That's right. It's not an afterthought. That's right. That's right. That's mind-blowing. And that's why the image and likeness that we are created in is essential to Christian evangelization because Catholicism, Christianity is not just for the European. It's for every human ever conceived. This is what we're made for. Right. Uh, is this pro- is a process of deification? Yes. It's, yes. It's, it's, so any conversion, about that. Right, any conversion right. is usually slow, laborious, a step here, a step back. But yes, of course. And this is why the church has the sacrament of reconciliation. This is why the church has community. This is why the church has the gift of mercy above all. That it is slow, and it is something that we eventually appropriate. But it does take some it takes some patience, and it takes some trust. But maybe speak to baptism on on the the reality of baptism in the beginning of this process. Well, the baptism is precisely what affects the indwelling of the, the Holy Spirit, the love between the Father and the Son in us. And so it's what unites us to God's family. And of course, that has to be raised. What's the line in the baptismal rite? That this white garment may go unstained. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm. So through example, through virtue, through lessons. Yeah. You know, Jerome says, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. I would push that and say, ignorance of the Old Testament is ignorance of salvation. Mm. Because the Exodus is the paradigm of salvation. You know, and we, we tend to think of that as a, a, a one-time event. It's over and done. And I would say most Christians, most Catholics are like most Israelites. It was like on the other side of the Red Sea, whew, it's good to be out of slavery. And they don't realize that the, that's just the beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. The Red Sea is likened unto baptism. Right. But we've got to get to Sinai, and we need the manna to do that. We need the commandments. We need the glory cloud of the Spirit to come down. But even that's not it. You know, the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 basically says to the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea, this isn't a sprint out of Egypt. This is a marathon. And what we're going to, where we're headed for, is Zion, the sanctuary, Exodus 15, 17. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, then suddenly it's out of Egypt to Sinai, then from Sinai across the Jordan, then the conquest of the promised land. The trajectory doesn't end. The narrative arc leads us to Zion, you know, to Jerusalem, and that's heaven. And it's like, okay, we better pace ourselves. This is not 400 meters, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we we move from Eden to exile to eternity, and that's a sheer leap right off the page. If if you read the catechism when they talk about the purpose of sacrament, uh, it's twofold. Uh, to remit sin, but to renew the life in Christ. And too often, I think, we fixate on the first. Okay, my sins are forgiven, but by George, in a week or so, I'll be back. Right. I'm I'm a recidivist. I I just keep (laughs) committing the same damn stuff. But the renewal in Christ is what we need to really rivet our minds upon. What does that mean? And like the Exodus, this is precisely why Easter morning is the lens through which we should see all Christian doctrine and our own Christian life. It's not the cross necessarily, because without the resurrection, that would just be one more act of Roman cruelty. 
Yeah. It's Easter that saves our souls, but the cross is front and center because we don't want to go right. there. Right, right. We've first got to go. Right? Yeah, Jesus, you carry the cross. What? No. How, yeah. how does this, concretely, how does this process of deification, what, what is my role, my job as a Christian to, to see that this is taking yeah. place, to cooperate? How do you? I would say in one word, surrender. Okay. The trust that the Lord wants to do this in you, that He's given you all the grace and the stuff you need to realize this, but it's not going to be your doing ultimately. It's going right. to be trusting Him in such a way that you open your heart Surrender, to Surrender, cooperation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, I remember what Ralph Martin said at the uh, memorial service for Father Michael Scanlon, our mentor, mm-hmm. kind of a, a father figure to us. Uh, he pointed out that every morning, Father Michael Scanlon would make a free and total act of surrender. He would give himself to Christ without in any way, you know, holding back. And that just enabled the Holy Spirit to flow through him. But that's not like an exceptional figure. That really is the pattern that God wants to use us all for. And it's the pattern of love that never demands or forces. Love always waits to be invited in. And so often in confession, my penance for other people is, I want you to make this prayer. Heavenly Father, I allow you to love me. I allow you to have me. I allow you to use me. Because the Lord doesn't act where He's not welcome. I I speak to the same. I often invite people to the same type of thing. Give God permission without condition. Simply give Him permission because I think we're often, I'll give you permission to, we fill in the blank. But there's something what you're saying is this radical total trust in the Lord that He's going to have His way with us and that way is good and holy. You know, that sentence you spoke, Father, give God permission, that's exactly what Mother Teresa said to uh, uh, John O'Connor when he walked up the aisle of St. Patrick's Cathedral to become the Archbishop of New York. She sort of took him aside and said, look, give God permission. And and it needs to be understood in that radical way. Open yourself. That's almost the reversal of the pattern of prayer that we almost always assume, and that is, Lord, please give me permission, you know, yeah. to do these things. Yeah. Here's my wish right. list. Right. Please permit me. No, right. but I think it's what you said, Father, is that the Lord only does this when invited. He's, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself upon us. And, and that surrender, that act of giving, I think, is at the heart of this. Right. And we have that in the Philippic hymn, right? Jesus, the Son of God, didn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at, to, be, to be taken. It has to be offered, not received. That's what the Son is. Well, there's that lovely painting, uh, uh, Holman Hunt, Mm -hmm. a 19th century uh, uh, painter, uh, showing Jesus standing outside the door, sort of knocking Mm -hmm. very gently, and there's no handle. Uh, It's on the inside. We We have have to to open open the door. door. And even that's an act of grace. Exactly. Right. But he won't leave. He'll He'll keep knocking. Yeah. 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 It's his door now, either side. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What, what do you see as the difficulties or the stumbling block for the average Catholic Christian to, to being able to do this? I think apathy. Okay. Really caring that this is what life is about. And I think most people's expectations are so low in the Christian church that if I can just roll into heaven without a serious mortal sin, I'll be okay. That's about what we expect. I'm but Christ afraid. wants to do so much more. I'm afraid that the Lord gives us usually what we expect and we expect so little. Yeah. You know, right. but He wants to be able right. to really yeah. shower us with I think things. of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. She was upset that there wasn't a corpse there. And I think that's the way a lot of people understand the Christian faith. If I can just get my Sunday obligation, that's enough. Mm-hmm. But our sights are so low. Yeah. yeah. So growing in the faith, growing in liturgical understanding is key. Mm. And, and how have you experienced just being able to talk about this theme of deification, how is it being received in the people that you are able to speak to? 
Yeah, I think, well, especially when you give them patristic quotes, you see how ancient this is and you see how it's continued through the medieval and the modern period as well when you know where to look for it. So this resonates even with your Jesuit colleagues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. In baptism, Christ's life is going to be reproduced in us. So we're going to become priestly, prophetic, and kingly people. Jesus was the new and eternal high priest, but we are anointed into his priesthood so that we can make of our whole lives a sacrifice to the Father by the grace of Christ. Jesus is, of course, the king. We become a kingly people whereby we root out sin in our own lives, and we serve Christ in others, especially the poorest among us. And of course, Jesus is the prophet, capital P. But in baptism, Christ's life is reproduced in us because we become a prophetic people to proclaim the good news in Christ by word and by deed. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record in the ComArts studio here at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment, and members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, and I are discussing living as members of the mystical body with uh, Father David McConey. So we've talked about this process of divinization, and you spend quite a bit of time about how that comes about, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in that, the role that the sacraments, the role that Our Lady. So maybe just walk us through, how is this actually going to take place in my life? That's a great question. We think about the three bodies of Christ. It may sound heretical at first, but when <laughs> God first. became human, right, God took on a biological, physical body. The night before he dies, he realizes he has to keep his promise to be with us always, to never leave us orphans. So he grants us the Eucharistic body. But the goal of that is to recognize him in the mystical body, which you and I are. Uh, whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mm -hmm. And so the effects, I think, first and foremost of divinization is understanding that Christ is not someone out there to be, to be, to be placated, to be, um, but he's also not contained only in religious or sanctuarial mm -hmm. ceremonial mm -hmm. things, but also in one another. And that's where we become saints, when we can love Christ in the streets. Agreed. Yeah. You know, if, if redemption is not primarily from sin, damnation, and hell, which if that's all it was, it would be great news, but it's infinitely greater because right. it's what we're redeemed for, exactly. being made partakers of the divine nature, sharing in Christ's own divine sonship. You know, and so by locking in on that, not only can we pace ourselves for life, but we can also recognize, you know, that for 30 years, Jesus wasn't just kind of waiting backstage. <laughs> you know, he was redeeming us all the time. You know, and so, come on, Lord, get going with get the public the ministry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, get, get started with the work of redemption. He would say, I am. And so, harmonization and divinization are like heads and tails. It's two sides of the same coin. 
so that in the manger, but also in the workshop, at the supper table, with the prayers and with the playfulness of family life, we were being divinized. He slowly wanted to show us that God is going to be found in the ordinary. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And this is where we meet Him in the everyday. Not just back then and there, but exactly. here and now. Because we yeah. think we're going to meet Him only in the extraordinary or only in the ceremonial. We will lose a lot of what God Amen. wants to do and who He is. Yeah. If you may, just because I thought the part that we were talking about Our Lady and her role in that, if you could maybe just speak to that a moment or two, because this is really beautiful. Well. The, the way I stress Mary's role is that she is the one who allows God to enter into the mortal condition, into the human estate. And it must have been very humbling for her, if not scary, don't be afraid, Mary, yeah. to think, God, if you are life, the only thing I can give you is death. Yeah. If you are infinite, the only thing I can give you is finitude. You're, you're great, I'm small. But that is where we meet our Lord, mm. not just in the healthy and the perfect, right. right? And so this is the trajectory from sinner to saint yeah. that Mary, Mary allows and makes, makes possible to happen through the Son. Yeah, a sword shall pierce your soul, sure, you know, sure. and so uh, uh, a lance pierced his side, but there is a sense in which she is called to participate in the cross, not in a way that is inferior, you know, for a mother, it would be easier for her to be pierced exactly. she than for, you know, to give consent to her beloved son's piercing right. and crucifixion. And so there really is a sense in which we see in her the perfect, you know, it's like exhibit A, uh, Christ's redemptive work is perfect. <laughs> you don't know me well enough, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But in her, we're like, okay, okay. That if that's yeah. where it starts, then we all have hope. Mm -hmm. You know, too often I, I think we misunderstand the mystery of her uh, immaculate conception as, as being just the absence of this bloody stain, right. this dishonor. She was somehow exceptionally spared. I mean, that, that's pretty negative. Uh, I think Ratzinger, uh, in his little book on, on Daughter Zion, says that in Mary there was no impediment, no barrier. Uh, she was totally open, completely transparent. Whatever God wanted, she wanted. Mm. This alignment of human and divine wills was exquisite, was mm. perfect. And the Immaculate Conception is necessary for the divinization concept because if this is the new Adam, if it is in Him where we die and rise to new life, we ask the question from where did He get this new nature? Mm. Where did He get the redeemed, reintegrated human nature? Right. Yeah. Well, it has to come from Our Lady, otherwise we are Nestorians or we are right, somehow right. heretical. You had such, I thought the way you just put that was beautiful and actually in my mind represents the book so well, is it's, it's such a positive beautiful book and, oh. and so much we often focus on Christianity as the negatives and the sin and you don't you don't deny all that but it's so positive and encouraging. I, that, when you said that, it's like, yes, that's what you did here. It's that's right. so positive. Christ doesn't want to salvage the ship from the bottom. He wants to raise it and, and right. make yeah. it new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, Bernanos uh, uh, in the diary of a country priest uh, describes Mary as having been younger than sin. Not just that she was spared sin or right. avoided sin. She was younger than yeah, sin. Right. It, it had no status, no being for her. She had no idea what, what, what is sin. Augustine says, in our sins we are born old. Yeah, <laughs> not shame or victory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that in the East, the Blessed Mother is spoken of not in terms of her immaculate conception, but panhagia. Mm -hmm. That is, she's all holy. And that's not something she became, that's not something she made herself, that's what she was at her conception because to be born without original sin, to be conceived without original sin, you know, original sin is not strictly speaking a stain. The catechism is very clear, it's a privation. That's right. You know, and so if you recognize that our first parents committed a mortal sin and basically expelled the indwelling trinity from their souls, 
that is how original sin is transmitted. We get human nature from our parents, but it's devoid of divine nature. Mm -hmm. We're naturally alive, but supernaturally dead. But in her conception, she is not only exempted from original sin, she is given this plentitude yeah. of right. grace. Right. So she's open, but even more, she's filled. Again. And as the glass grows, as she continues to mature as a woman, she continues to be filled with a greater and greater fullness. And it's like, you know, Hollywood, just put away your stories. Yeah. I mean, this thing will boil the world to rags. We ought to be focusing on this. And through our natural conception and birth, we are still divided. That yeah. We are not as organically related as the Father intended. And in Mary, we are regathered, recapitulated, as Paul yeah, says. Right. And it's that humanity that she offers to her son. Yeah, we see perfect atonement mm. uh, in the condition of Mary. She's that's right. at one with herself, with God, with her neighbor, mm -hmm. and with nature. And that's a good cosmos. question for any Christian. Where do you see, how did your, how, did, how are your sins forgiven by that death? Where is your humanity? He's, he's all of us because he received that fullness of nature through her. Yeah. Right. And again, looking at Mary, it's the same theme is not from a, a lacking of something, but a presence of something. Right. And I think that's what you're continually inviting us to in the book. You spend quite a bit of time talking about C.S. Lewis and, and us being little Christs, which I thought was just a beautiful reference. So maybe speak to this. Yeah, I dedicate a whole chapter to Lewis Indeed. because so many of us just rely on him for so many beautiful images and image, uh, metaphors. But his entire mere Christianity leads up to book four about becoming little Christ, becoming extensions of Christ's own presence on earth. And this is precisely the whole goal of all Christian doctrine and, and apologetics. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's what Christian means. That's right. Little Christ. Christ means anointed one, but in our anointing through baptism, yeah. we become little Christs, alter Christus, ipse Christus, Christ himself, you know, and that radical identification with us is something I don't think we're ready for. You're right. We don't know what to do with that. Augustine has a great homily, number 272, where he says, at baptism, the first thing we do, we're initiated right into the Christian body. And so the oil of initiation crushes us from our own autonomy and individuality. We're now brought into a family. We'll never be alone again. That's one of Satan's great lies, right? right, right. And that's what we do with wheat. First thing we do is we crush it. Then we leaven with the water, baptism itself, and then we chrismate with the uh, oil of chrism. And this is where we are baked by the Holy Spirit. So really Augustine's understanding of the baptism is that we also become the body of Christ, the, the Eucharist for the world. The world is an oven. That makes sense. There you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But this is not the sort of catechesis that typically goes on uh, in the parish. No, but isn't I'm it beautiful afraid. to look 1600 years ago, the baptismal rite is exactly the same today. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. this is yep. how Christ intended it. Yep. Yeah. But Regis's point I think is so well taken. It's not being transmitted. You know, I just want to press pause now, not fast forward, and say, let's bring all of this into the room. Let's bring all of this into RCIA. But then we have to expand the RCIA room where we meet because once the good news gets out, once people discover, wow, that's not just, you know, moralism, that's not legalism, that's not ritualism, that is what deification? We are made children of God? I, I think the good news has been sort of tied up, you know, and it reminds me of Spurgeon's line that we are defending the faith. We ought to recognize it's like the roaring lion. Let him out of his cage. He'll do a better job of defending himself and letting the gospel just out, let it go. And uh, this is going to revolutionize catechesis. Yeah, and I think, I think that when, when people are invited to that, like one of the things I do in our Holy Hours with our conferences is help the, the individual who's in front of the Blessed Sacrament recognize that Jesus is eternal and has always been, but that we are as well. And when 
the God who dwells in me in the image and likeness that most is eternal, encounters God who the Christ who is eternal, there's a union and a communion that takes place in this that I, I do this with teenagers and they get it. They yeah. get it. it. It makes sense for them if somebody just shines a little bit of a light on right. it. Right. Or have them reflect on their experience before a television. They start to take on the, what they've been watching yeah. for hours and same yeah. before the Blessed Sacrament. We should present ourselves and offer ourselves say, Lord Jesus, what you are, let me become. Let me take on your characteristics, your virtue, your love. This is what it's all. Little crazy. I mean, why else were we given a body if not to join that body to His own? That's precisely why, why he else was did given he one too. Yeah. Right. But I think that most of us assume that we were given a body, just like you know, a book comes in a box, right? Yeah. To discard, you know, yeah. when in fact it's the instrument of our divinization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just mentioned the holy hour in the high school kids, the mm -hmm. teenagers. I know a guy in his mid sixties who was in a holy hour a month ago that you led. Mm. And I thought at the time, this is, this, this is dissimilar from any other holy hour. And, and what you did to me and to nearly a thousand others was just to lead us so peaceably mm. into the serene presence of our Lord. And I had just given a talk, mm. and so I, was, I should have been distracted, mm. self-critical and all of that, should have been leaving, but I, I, I was transfixed. And your words were good, but his presence was yeah, so yeah, much yeah, more real yeah, and so much better than the <laughs> words were too. And just the sheer reality yeah. of the thing, I think, struck us all so gently. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a velvet, you know, or a sponge hammer or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. And this is a, a, again what what you're able to do is to raise us up in, in, in the beauty and the dignity of of the person. And, and I think. You mentioned this this little Christ and becoming other Christ and this beginning to spread. And, and I was actually thinking of COVID, just how COVID started, wherever it started. Let's not get into that, right? right? But yeah. from person to person to person to person, you look across the world, you could literally see it. Okay, it was here, it spread out. This should be our faith, right? Well, this it's, is your this is your campus. This is it. Any yeah. visitors clear yeah. that yeah. this it's the, infectious. Well, this what faith. is Lewis called? The yeah. good infection. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. The good infection. And that's what I was thinking about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, somebody said that the faith is not propagated so much by reason as it is caught uh, by contagion. Mm -hmm. It's a good infection mm -hmm. by example and, we and need by to charity. Spread it around. Exactly. Yeah. And this is why the hidden years of Jesus' life was still redemptive. He's right. loving as he's going about that everyday life, just as your students and just as each of us do. You think about how. The Great Commission was fulfilled in the first three or four centuries. Make disciples of all nations, and the, the pagan Roman Empire was gradually but dramatically transformed without the internet, you know, without... What? Is that possible? <laughs> without TV, radio, Programs. without airplanes, cars, you know. It was through friendship and family life. Right. I mean, the blood of the martyrs, to be sure, but that just really, just, you know, that was like the rain that came down upon the soil where you had real relationships. And then sharing your story, sharing what, exactly. sharing what the Lord has done. Always be prepared to give an account of that which gives you hope and which we're not. And Tertullian makes the point that Romans were converted by Christians visiting people in jails they didn't even know, bringing food to the hungry who they weren't even related to, that this was the example of how we serve Christ and one another. It's Matthew 25, which was one of the great uh, passages for divinization. And just to, uh, we're trying to remember, but I thought your, the section when you talk about being able to do that is supernatural. That, that as we're being divinized, that my ability to love my enemy isn't just a good idea, but it, it's supernatural. It's, it's beyond me and my capabilities. That's right. That's right. Which, uh, yeah, I think, I think we try in our own power. I think one of the things that Holy Father has spoken of so often recently is this whole Pelagianistic, that I can do it myself. Mm -hmm. But you make it clear, 
uh, on our own, we're not going to do so good. And Pelagianism is always privatization. Yeah. Mine first. Right. I got to take care of this and then. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Up next, our panel and our guests will share their final thoughts on living as a member of the mystical body. Please stay with us. In the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, one of the ways that we participate in union with Christ is by offering ourselves to the Father and then receiving Christ and making ourselves an offering to the world. So in the celebration of the Mass, it's really the sacrifice of the Mass we're made present at Christ's Paschal Mystery. And I'm really called to place myself spiritually on the altar and in Christ make of myself an offering to the Father. But then, of course, we receive the Holy Eucharist, and I'm called to bring Christ now out to the world and make of myself an offering at work, in my house, in my recreation. There is a place where education begins, and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So Regis, if you could start us off with your thoughts. Yeah, uh, we, we give what we've got. And even if it's just a little, uh, God can make something great. Uh, because what he wants is our heart. And it's the same heart that beats and vibrates uh, uh, in every human being. Uh, one thing that really strikes me uh, in, in the Gospels is how seldom Jesus evinces uh, amazement. But at least twice, uh, he's sort of astonished. On the one hand, by the unbelief of, uh, of the Pharisees, but the other time uh, by the faith of the centurion, who's a pagan, for heaven's sake, and, and simply says, look, uh, why don't you just do this? Uh, I'm not worthy to have you enter under my roof, but, but uh, go ahead and do it anyway, because so boundless is my trust in your capacity to work something good, then I give you permission to enter under my roof. And that, I think, is the invitation that, that God is looking for. Give me permission to take over the whole house, the entire enterprise, and, and see what, what amazing things uh, uh, I, can, I can work, what, what glories I might wrought uh, with, my, with my will. And then the other uh, uh, image that came to mind is that of the mustard seed. If you had faith, even that puny, you could move uh, blooming mountains. And I think the mountains represent a kind of metaphor for sin, the immensity of sin mm. that, that oppresses us, sin and evil. If you had faith that small, you could even shatter uh, this, this mountain of, of sin. Uh, you know, if, if if I find a place where I can stand, I can move the bloody world. And faith is that place. Uh, and then finally, you, you uh, mentioned Caravaggio uh, mm -hmm. uh, during the break, one of my favorite paintings in the Church of San Louis. Uh, there's Matthew, uh, who's, who's uh, counting his coins. And the irony is, if you want to see that painting, you've got to put coins <laughs> in, in the machine. Yes. But it lights up. And, Matthew is incredulous. Me? 
you know, you want me? And yet Jesus is pointing unmistakably at this guy. Yeah, I want you. I want all of you. Give me permission to take over your life. And then you got to follow me. That's beautiful. Great. Thank you so much. This book you've written, I, I think, is... It, it, it's every bit as enriching as anything that Delubach wrote. Uh, so the two Jesuits that I now most <laughs> admire well, thank you. are yourself and Henri de Lubach. Not bad, not bad company, wow. Dr. Hahn. Beautiful, Regis. Thank you. And um, thank you, not only for writing this book, um, it really is, it reminds me of Delubach's Catholicism, only for beginners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but thank you for allowing us to publish it at the Road at St. Paul's Center. Uh, I, I want to, I don't want to do this, but I, I think I need to. I worked harder on this little blurb than most blurbs. This book conveys the essence of the Catholic gospel with clarity, power, and practical insight. Too many people make too little of the truth that we actually become and grow up as members of Christ's mystical body. I don't know of a book that I could give to somebody that captures the heart and the beauty of the Catholic gospel. You know, when I was a non-Catholic, there was a lot of good news. And becoming Catholic, you don't subtract anything. No. You just add. You exponentially multiply. The good news gets almost too good to be true. But the idea that, you know, we are members of Christ's body, but we're also brothers and sisters with the eternal Son of God. Mm-hmm. You know, I, later today I'm going to be flying, you know, and I suppose there might be people on the fl- on the on the flight that I I know or I'm related to, but I don't, you know. But I think through God's fatherly eyes, He would want to whisper in our ears, "You're related to every single passenger on that flight." You know, they might not be your second cousin, but through my eyes, they're all members of this family which you are a part of. That's right. And in Christ, you know, in Adam, it's a broken family, but in the new Adam, help me to remake it through Christ. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to put the headphones in just yet. You know, I want to see if I can start a chat or a conversation to share this with people because, I mean, to, to withhold this out of sensitivity of, you know, hurting somebody's feeling, that's not an act of friendship. No. You know, that's a betrayal of friendship. Yeah, so thank you for writing it. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. Well, one of the aspects yeah. of divinization is the reassuring fact that love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable. God has become our neighbor, and the truth is, when we love, so you'll be on this plane, and everyone will say, oh, there's Scott Hahn, don't we love him? And they started loving each other because of that same common object of love. And so we Christians should love each other because we all love the same Lord. And precisely what happened in World War II, Mystici Corporis. Yes. Pius XII calling us back to the fact that this family, this human group should be one, and we have become divided. We start to worship the state, therefore we start to divide. And I think divinization is a way to overcome the very strong political animus we have today, that we start to separate based on right. color and voting, Everything. And right? Yeah. There's one of my favorite stories of the desert monks is a young monk who comes into the abbot, and he says, you know, I've kept the rule, I've done everything for years, what do I do now? And the abbot stretches his arms upward and he says, now become fire. Yeah. Right? Don't, don't think that this is all there is. You are to become someone new, someone empowered with the grace of the Holy Spirit to do superhuman things. And that's what I think we need to recover in a world that thinks of Christianity only as one more set of rules or only one more way of life. But and a harder of set of rules, right. yeah. more demanding. And oh, when you think that divinization makes it 
Yeah, love is demanding. Yeah. <laughs> Read the letter to the Galatians, right? The law is a lot easier because you're in charge. You're still kind of checking the box to where you stand, but love is a little slipperier. And liberating. Liberating. I was uh, mentioning to one of the friars this morning just about your book, and I said one of the things that I appreciate about it is Father David is so smart, and, and that comes through, but the way you're able to present it in a way that's manageable and comprehensible, it was just wonderful. So I just want to thank you for the, for the time and the effort that you put into it. Um, we actually have uh, the first chapter of the book that you're mm -hmm. going to be making available. So if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, uh, this excerpt will be available from Father Marconi's new book, uh, Christ Alive in Me. It's yours for free if you simply go online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you're going to see in the bottom of the screen. Uh, and again, I just want to thank you for, for the time and the effort and undoubtedly the prayer. You can't read this book without realizing that, that you've prayed and that this isn't just a cognitive exercise you are a part of, but you read this and you get a sense that this is, this is your DNA, that, that you're, you're experiencing this and, 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 again, presenting it in a way that says, oh my goodness, that might be possible for me. Uh, one of the things that I alluded to earlier is this, the reality that if, if I truly understand and believe what it means that Christ dwells in me, that changes everything. It changes the way I pray. It changes the way I go to the sacraments. It changes the way I go to confession. Confession isn't just to get a quick confession in, but it changes everything uh, in me and how I see myself. And if I can see God dwelling in me, then that ought to have an impact about the way I see other people. Yeah. And that was the, the maybe the, the last part to, to share in the morning is that if, if we understand what Christ has done in the brother or sister that, that's with us, and you know, Mother Teresa said, we've forgotten that we belong to one another. Augustine says, we're so careful to, to reverence the Christ in the Eucharist, but we drop the brother or Christ and the brother or sister next to us, that, that there has to be a response, and that response has got to be love. It has got to be ultimately a love for the brother and sister. So when you said, alluded to earlier about the, the separation that it's experiencing and how divisive everything, everything is divisive, and, and that's the work of the evil one. Ultimately, if the evil one can divide and cause us to look at them and those and, and build walls, and what this does is it realizes, again, what Mother Teresa, that we belong to one another, that Christ is present, he's my brother and my sister, and he's present in one another, and that ought to demand a response. Exactly. Thank you so much. How about you close us with prayer? Well, we'll ask the Son of God to make us more like him through our prayers and our surrender and our love for one another. May Almighty God bless all of you here on Franciscan's campus and all you watching today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com, where you can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents. Or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800 783-6447.